Acts chapter 2. We've been, um, we've been focused on Peter's proclamation on the day of Pentecost to the crowd in the city of Jerusalem that gathered from throughout the city just because they heard the commotion of what was happening on the outpoured spirit upon the 120 disciples in the upper room. And, and the circumstance in the upper room at this point is now spilled out into the street. And Peter takes the opportunity to proclaim this message to the people that are gathered. Uh, I've been emphasizing, even though it's traditionally called Peter's sermon, it's not technically or really a sermon in the sense that it's not aimed at believers, it's aimed at unbelievers. And it is really an evangelism circumstance. It's a gospel encounter circumstance where people that uh, are curious, but they're not coming in their curiosity in order to be saved in their own minds and hearts, but they're being confronted by certain critically important truths and the proclamation and explanation of those truths through Peter. And then at the end, we're going to see that these 3,000 people that have gathered are going to be saved that day. But what we've been focused on so far is identifying that the main theme of everything that Peter, and we're about halfway through uh, what Peter had to proclaim, but the main theme of what he had to say was, It's really all about Jesus. It's really all about who he is and what he had come to accomplish. And of of course, a lot of the main focus is on what has just recently occurred there in the city of Jerusalem regarding Jesus. And then we've identified that there are seven, what I'm calling sub-themes, more like individual focal points that highlight specific aspects of who Jesus is and what God has accomplished through him. And we're working our way through those seven, and we've come to the next two today, which are the resurrection and how Peter uses a specific portion of Old Testament prophecy in order to make the point that he wants to make about the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to kind of speed up. I've been, as you probably have noticed, I've been... um, taking my time with this message because it's such a critically important one. But we're going to speed up a little bit today and tackle a little bit larger portion of his message. So I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 24. Actually, I'll probably, just for the sake of the flow, I'll probably read starting in verse 22. But I'll read through to verse 32, and we'll focus in our study today on Acts 2, 24 through 32. But reading from verse 22... Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and this is where the Old Testament prophecy is uh, being used by Peter. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. All right, so what we're looking at in our study today, verses 24 through 32, is what I want to describe as the heart of the message that Peter had to proclaim that day. As I've already mentioned, there are seven, there are seven focal points, all pointing like, if you can think of like uh, seven spotlights, all focused on Jesus. And this section only contains two of them, but in a sense, they're, they're the two most important ones because these, this section and this portion of what Peter had to say that day is really, is really the saving portion of the message, so to speak. Everything else is kind of building up to this and everything following is kind of taking it even one step further as we're going to see in our subsequent studies. But this is the heart of the gospel message as God has inspired the apostle Peter to proclaim it. Now, one of the things I've already emphasized, but it's worth saying again, as we're looking at what Peter had to say that day, I want all of us to be thinking in terms of potential future opportunities the Lord may give you and I to share a message like this with at least some one other person in our future. Not all of us, and the Bible is very clear about this, are gifted evangelists. I, I've known a few over the course of my years in the Lord, a few what I would rightly identify as and discern to be gifted evangelists. These are people that they wake up and they, you know, if they're coffee drinkers, they'll have their first cup of coffee in the morning. And the first thought on their mind as they're drinking that cup of coffee is, who am I going to get to share the gospel with today? Uh, that's not how I tick. That, and that may not be how you tick. Is that the first thought on your mind in the morning? Who am I going to get to share the gospel with today? But I've known a few people like that. Their, their, their whole perspective, their whole heart priority, the way they plan their day is around the unknown but, but likely possibility that the Lord is going to bring that, their path across the path of someone that doesn't yet know the Lord. And they're just, they're excited and they're energized and they're looking forward to that opportunity. And when the opportunity strikes, they're like, they're on that thing, like a duck on a June bug. You know, they're, they're ready to share the gospel. So you may not be like that. I may not be like that. But every single one of us 
has been called to be a representative of the Lord in terms of the saving gospel message. And every single one of us should be available when the Lord does bring us into a circumstance. It may only be one person between now and the end of your life, but if you can effectively communicate the gospel to a person that the Lord brings your way in order to bring them to a new and eternal relationship with the Lord, then I want you to be equipped and prepared for that moment. And one of the best ways you can be equipped and prepared for that moment is by looking at the pattern and the example that is given to us in the book of Acts of what I'm going to call gospel encounters. So, of course, I'm teaching through Acts chapter 2, but as you might imagine, I've read through the entire book of Acts. I've read through the entire book of Acts more than once, and just recently, I've read through it again in detail, and I'm looking for specific things as I'm reading through it. And for this particular study, I reread the book of Acts again And I was looking for what I'm calling gospel encounters. The main accounts in the book of Acts of when the Lord brings someone bearing the gospel of salvation into an encounter with at least one individual and oftentimes more than one, oftentimes groups. And their job is to effectively share the message of salvation with the people that the Lord has brought them to speak to. And the question I had in my mind and heart as I read through these gospel encounters, and by the way, I identified 14 major gospel encounters in the book of Acts. My question is, what did they talk about? And I'm talking here about the people sharing the gospel. What was their message? What was the focal point? And I've recently compared what we see in the book of Acts as the, as the gospel message to what is commonly taught to believers today as this is what you're supposed to share with unbelievers. And I've seen some differences. It doesn't mean that any efforts in terms of training and and preparation for sharing the gospel that is not exactly like what we see in Acts is wrong or bad. It just may not be as fully effective as what we see in the book of Acts. Because we can know this for certain. With these gospel encounters, the ones that are highlighted for us, that are in the spotlight for our heart's perspective, these are inspired by God. God was at work in these circumstances and at work in and through the person sharing the gospel with those that did not yet know him. And the number one focal point that is common in 12 out of the 14 gospel encounters that I found in the book of Acts And it's implied in the other two, but it's a primary focal point in 12 of them is what we're focused on in this section, verses 24 through 32, the resurrection of Jesus. In Peter's gospel proclamation, the resurrection is the most important thing. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, as we eventually come to these other gospel encounter moments, you're going to see that the resurrection is the most important thing that's communicated. Now, keep in mind, Jesus remains the main focus in all of those encounters, but what about Jesus is the most important thing for you to communicate to an unbeliever? If I said to you, look, you're going to be given a gospel opportunity by the Lord at some point in your future, and you can only share one thing, with the people that do not yet know the Lord, what would be that one thing that you would share with them? 
typically, in terms of the tradition of Christian proclamation, the emphasis seems to shift to the cross, where believers will try to share with unbelievers, don't you know that Jesus died for your sins? And if that person believes the gospel in a saving way, and if they come to know the Lord, it is absolutely true that Jesus did die for their sins. But is that the focal point of what Peter emphasizes on the day of Pentecost? And is it the focal point of the remaining 13 great gospel encounters we find in the book of Acts? And the answer is no. This is not commonly known, but if you do a simple word study using the word cross as your focal point, looking for all of the times the cross is specifically mentioned in the book of Acts, how many times is it specifically mentioned? The answer is zero. Think about that. Now, the death of Jesus is mentioned. Peter mentions it right here in this message. But he doesn't mention it as a saving death to the people he's speaking to. He mentions it as a point of accountability for them. And he wants them to understand that they participated in an evil way in the circumstances that inevitably led to the death of Jesus on the cross. But he never says to this group, don't you know that Jesus died for your sins? Why wouldn't he say that to them? These 3,000 that he's speaking to that day did, at the end of this chapter, we're not quite there yet, they did get saved. So is it true that Jesus died for their sins? Yes, it's absolutely true. Why didn't he say that, though, in his proclamation of the gospel? Because it would have been meaningless to them at this point. It would have been somewhat nonsensical to them. And so instead, he focuses their attention on the singularly great event that proves that his death was a special death, that proves his death was a saving death. And without that proof, any proclamation of his death as a saving death won't really land at heart level the way that you would want it to land. Now, as I said, I've gone through the entire book of Acts. I've looked carefully for this. The cross is never mentioned. Neither in any of these 14 messages that are shared, these 14 great gospel encounters in the book of Acts, neither is there a single time where you see the phrase, Jesus died for your sins. It's just not part of the early church's proclamation in an evangelism moment. Now, does that mean that in some way Peter was against the idea of the death of Christ on the cross being a saving death? Absolutely not. Later, when you read the books of First and Second Peter, that is a primary focus. Not the only one, not the exclusive one, but it's a big focus in his letters. So why not here? The point is, Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus dying for your sins is not an evangelism message. It's a discipleship message. It's for those who have come to know the Lord to understand the inner workings and the deeper truths about how it is that God ensured you could be saved through the sacrifice of his son. But that's not so much a message to share with those that do not yet know him. Now, if you share that message with someone, I'm not going to be the gospel police. And I'm not going to come around behind you and say, why did you tell them about the cross? 
You know, if the Lord leads you to share with someone that doesn't know the Lord about the cross, share it, share it boldly, share it gladly, share it fully. But I do want you to see by comparing the emphasis of these different gospel encounters, how critically important the resurrection is. Because most believers, when they share today the gospel with unbelievers, they don't so much talk about the resurrection. And that's the one thing all of these encounters in the book of Acts is focused on. And so I'm looking at these examples that the Lord chose from the early church's experience to highlight and to record for our sake. I'm looking at these as a template for our understanding of this is the most effective way to share the gospel. Put the emphasis where the Lord puts the emphasis. Put the emphasis where the apostles put the emphasis. Put the emphasis where the book of Acts puts the emphasis. And the emphasis is squarely on the resurrection. Now, it's central for these two reasons. I've kind of alluded to it already, but let me just make sure we understand. Without the resurrection, if you leave the resurrection out of the story of Christ, not that you say there was no resurrection, but you just don't emphasize it. You don't focus on it. You don't tell unbelievers about it then anything you're telling them about the cross is in question because he died and what makes his death any different than anyone else's death? As I've said before, Jesus was of course crucified, but he was far from the only person crucified in that time in the ancient world. You all understand and know that even on the day he was crucified, he had two individuals crucified to the left and to the right of him. But there were literally thousands of people that the Roman Empire crucified in those early days. And without the resurrection as the capstone of the story, the capstone of the message of the gospel, you're left wondering, well, what makes his death any different? And can you really prove that his death was any different? And because of that, you would have no way of assuring anyone's heart that his death was truly a saving death. So what we're going to look at now is in this section that is focused on the resurrection, how does Peter highlight the resurrection? And he does so with seven points of emphasis. So we're just going to tackle and kind of briefly go through each one of these seven points of emphasis. First, and he does this twice, two times, he emphasizes that God raised Jesus from the dead. So you have a couple of things here. One is you have just the bare fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. But Peter wants to be sure to emphasize in the minds of those that are listening to him, this was God's doing. This wasn't just a random yet amazing event that happened that someone came back out of the grave, but this was a work of heaven this was a, a miraculous thing. This was something only God himself can do. And this was something that God exclusively did. Because I'll say it this way, the only person in all of history from before this moment in the book of Acts till our present moment, and this will remain true until the second coming of Christ, the only person in all of history that was raised from the dead never to die again is the Lord Jesus. Now, we all understand there's a few other people in history that have been raised from the dead. Jesus, for instance, raised Lazarus from the dead. And he wasn't the only one. He raised a few others. But Lazarus went on to 
come back to life in the same condition that he was in before he died. And, and I don't mean a sickly condition. I mean simply a natural condition. And he went on to live out his days in this world. And then he died again. And everyone else that was ever raised from the dead throughout the entire accounts of the Bible resurrection stories, everyone went back to their normal life and later died a second time. Jesus, of course, is the unique and exclusive um, contradiction to that principle in that he was raised to a new and greater kind of life. He was raised to a glorious resurrected body, one that is now impervious to death and to disease and to corruption and to decay and to sickness and to weakness, and he will never die again. So the emphasis is on God raising Jesus from the dead. I said, Peter says it twice. Let's read the two times. They function, these two declarations function as what I'm going to call bookends. Because this section, being the heart of the gospel proclamation on the day of Pentecost, starts in verse 24 with a declaration, and it ends in verse 32 with the same declaration repeated. Verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. Now, this is a a simple principle, but it's one I've learned to pay attention to in my own study of God's word a principle of interpretation. And that is, whenever God repeats himself, consider why it is that he's repeating himself. Sometimes you'll hear me repeat myself. And it's usually when I repeat myself, it's just because I'm concerned that you didn't really get it the first time. And I want to make sure you get it. It's it's something that seems important to me to emphasize. And so I might say it twice You've, you've heard me say certain things dozens of times over the years of listening to me. It's because I, I want to make sure you really get it. So the question is, why would God repeat himself? It isn't any one single declaration of God so valuable, so powerful, so important that he wouldn't need to repeat himself? And yet he does for our sake so that we can catch the clue of the importance of the emphasis. So God raised him up as bookends of this core heart level declaration of the gospel. Verse 24, verse 32. And I see in this the principle of what I had the opportunity when I went to Kenya recently. You might remember I mentioned this in teaching the pastors there. And we were teaching them the essentials of faith. And I had the opportunity to do one single message focused on this principle from these two verses, which is the resurrection of Christ functioning as an ultimate vindication, a vindication. Now, let me, let me define for you the word vindicate. It means to provide evidence or proof, evidence or proof to substantiate a claim that's being made. So the question is, what claim was made about Jesus himself that needed evidence or proof in order to substantiate that claim in the eyes of the community in which he lived. Well, he claimed certain things about himself, the most important being that he was the son of God in a unique and special relationship with God the Father 
and that he was, as we'll be emphasizing in a few minutes here, also the son of David. That title being one of his most common self-descriptors as he would refer to himself in the third person as the son of David. There's a specific reason why he did so. But the question that would rise in the minds of the crowd, the community around him, and here we're in the city of Jerusalem, is who are you to say that you're the son of God in the way that I'm not? And who are you to say you're the son of David, which was old covenant code for I'm saying that I am the Messiah, the special one, the chosen one, because God had promised to King David It's from your descendants. I'm going to, in the future, select one special individual and they will be my chosen one. And through them, I will fulfill all of my great plans and purposes in history. So the question in the minds of the crowd is, who are you to say that you are the son of God? Who are you to say that you're the fulfillment of the son of David messianic claim? We've got lots of people you know, that come every so often that claim to be the Messiah. How can we know with certainty that you are? Now, in a previous study from this message, we focused on the miracles that Christ did during his earthly ministry as an evidence or proof that he was the Messiah. And those miracles should have been sufficient proof. But we also are warned in scripture about how there can be those that are false and claim to be the Messiah and will use what we can call false signs, false wonders, and even false miracles to to substantiate their claim. And so there's always still the question, how can we know for certain? And so what God did in history was that he appointed for his son to die the death that he died on the cross. All of that, of course, having a a great saving purpose to it. But following that, allowing him to be buried in the tomb for three days and three nights. Why wait so long, three days and three nights? It was commonly believed in the community of that day that three days after death is when the soul actually finally departed from the body. Now, am I saying that that's what actually happens? No, I believe the soul departs from the body at the moment of actual death. But that community in those days believed it was three days later and that when the soul finally disconnected from the dead body, that's when body decomposition would begin. And so why would God allow Jesus to remain in the tomb for three days and three nights? To prove it was a real death to signify this man really did. It, it's not just he died on the cross, later was taken to the tomb, and the, like some have said, some foolish uh, commentators have said, oh, the coolness of the tomb revived him, and he came back to life, and you know, kind of like a, a hero, you know, you'll see in the movies, uh, like the superhero movies, the superhero seems to be wounded so severely, and then the next scene, they're like fighting like nothing has ever happened to them. It's not like that. Jesus died a real death, a final death. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead. And he did so as the ultimate proof that everything that Jesus claimed for himself and about himself was actually 
true. True in a way that no other proof other than the resurrection could possibly prove it. Because the claim is so great, son of God, son of David, Messiah, the claim is so great that it requires an equally great proof. And that's what the resurrection functions as. Now he also, let's look at a couple passages of scripture in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll just briefly touch on these because we studied these in detail together uh, when we went through Matthew. The first is in Matthew 3. God also raised Jesus from the dead as a testimony of what Jesus had experienced, but God himself had spoken earlier in his public ministry. Matthew chapter 3. And this is from verse 17. And of course, this is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist circumstance. And I'll read verse 16 and 17 together. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, and we rightly understand and identify that voice as belonging to God the Father. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If God the Father had abandoned Christ on the cross and had abandoned him to death and left him dead, we could not know with certainty that what God the Father said on the day of the baptism of Jesus was actually true. This is my beloved son. And the emphasis there on this, apart from every other possible candidate for these words, this man is the only one that can properly be described this way by God the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now let's fast forward to chapter 17. We're somewhat deeper into the public ministry of Jesus. And this is the circumstance that we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He took them up to a high mountain and was transfigured before them, which essentially just means he kind of, he kind of pulled back the curtains of his natural circumstance and allowed them to see his true nature in full expression, allowed them to see his glory. And we'll, we'll pick up halfway through the account in verse 4. <clears throat> Peter, James, and John are there on the mountain, and there, Peter in particular is kind of what I would call awestruck at what he's just seen. And he says this, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here, course it was good that they were there but he's Peter saying not just good for us it's good for you it's good for you that we're here the reason is uh if you wish I will make three tents here one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah I mean let's just hang out here for a while shall we and I'm here I'll take care of all the practical stuff you just focused on Moses and Elijah and the and the important stuff that they're here to speak to you about and I'll take care of the details verse five He was still speaking, Peter was, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, meaning basically what happened here is God interrupted Peter. Peter was like, you know, 
his wheels are spinning. I'll, I'll make tents. You know, here's the plan. And God says, okay, here's my cloud. That's enough. Let me, let me take care of this situation. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Adding one line that wasn't in the baptism declaration by the father. Listen to him. Now, these two declarations, this is my beloved son. This in exclusion to everyone else. This compared to everyone else. This one is my beloved son. And the well-pleased has to do with God's testimony that he's lived exactly the way that I want human beings to live. But he's the only one that's been able to accomplish that. He's the only one that's been able to actually live it out. And as a result, I am well-pleased with him. But the question is, even hearing God say that at the baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, can we know with certainty that he really was, because it's just a random disembodied voice as, as far as the hearers are concerned. Can we have something more tangible as proof? And the more tangible proof that God the Father provided was, of course, the resurrection of his son. All right, let's head back to Acts and pick up the next point of emphasis. All of these seven points of emphasis are focused on the resurrection just looking at the resurrection kind of like if you held up a diamond and you want to see the fullness of that diamond's beauty you're going to turn it and you're going to look at different facets of that diamond so that you can see all the ways the light is playing with the uh, the the facets of the diamond so you can see the full beauty of the diamond and that's i think what these seven points of emphasis are like so in um, in chapter two let's look at the next one we're now in verse let me give me one second here. We're in verse um, uh, 24. God raised him up. That was our first focal point. And then this next one, kind of an interesting description and one that requires just a brief explanation. God raised him up. And when he raised him up, this is what was happening. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The word loosing here literally means like untying a knot, you know, kind of loosening something that is too tight to fully understand or deal with. And what was loosed in the resurrection of Jesus is called the pangs of death. Now this word pangs means deep agony, deep pain. And it's most commonly used in scripture to describe the experience of a woman giving birth. The pangs of birth. And I think Peter chose this imagery by the Spirit of God. He's inspired by the Spirit to choose this imagery. And I think he chooses it on purpose. He's comparing the resurrection of Jesus to, it's like a birth process. And something new is coming into the world now, in the resurrection of Christ. Some, something new and wonderful And what's new and wonderful, of course, is the glorious person that he's revealed to be in his resurrection. And in the resurrection, everything that death was trying to do with Jesus was fully resolved and defeated. The the imagery here is there's like in, in, in a woman giving birth, obviously, Half of us here have never had that experience. Maybe more than half of us have never had that experience. But we all can kind of understand that, that 
the birth process, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, an experience against great resistance. That's the best way I could maybe think to describe it. And there's great resistance here in the resurrection of Christ. And the resistance is represented by death itself. Death is being personified here as something that is trying to keep the resurrection from happening. And so Peter adds this second line to make sure we get the point that he's making when he says, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And the word it at the end of verse 24 is referring to death. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Now, death is a common human experience. Thankfully, none of us have experienced it yet. Not a single person in this room has ever experienced death, but we all will. Our turn is coming. Some of us more quickly than others. But when we die, what's going to happen next for you and I? Yes, our soul does, but you and I, for however long between the moment of our death until the second coming of Christ, you and I will be held by death. We're not coming out of the grave until the second coming. And there is, of course, for us, a promise of a great final resurrection like his that's waiting for us, but only when he returns. So let's say I died today, later this afternoon. I wouldn't want to die in front of you. I would want to, you know, not freak you out in that way. So I'm going to go home and die in private. But you hear about it later. Hey, did you hear that Tim died today after the service? And let's say the Lord waits for his second coming 100 years. I don't know that he'll wait 100 years. He could wait longer. He could wait less. But let's say he waits 100 years. What's going to be my story for that next 100 years? Yes, my soul will be in heaven with the Lord. Praise God for that. But as far as my body is concerned, I am being held by death. I'm not coming out of the grave. I'm not coming out of the tomb. No matter how much I would want that to happen, it's not happening. I'm held by death. Why? All right, let's keep our place in Acts and let's jump over to 1 Corinthians. And I don't think, for our overhead sake, I don't think I got this passage in our... Oh, no, I did. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 56. I thought I might have left it out. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. This whole section, starting in verse 50 is important in relationship to what I'm trying to describe right now. But I'll start reading for the sake of the flow. I'll start reading in verse um, 53. For this perishable body, Paul is talking about this present natural physical body. All of our bodies are a little bit different. In some cases, a lot different. But all of our physical bodies are exactly the same in one sense. They all share the same spiritual condition. It's a natural, physical body, susceptible to weakness, susceptible to death. And this is what he's talking about. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. He's talking about our future resurrection. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the immort- puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, 
that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So there at the end, in verses, the end of verse 54 and, and all of verse 55, there's this wonderful final victory that we're all going to experience over the greatest enemy that we ever face in our life, which is the inevitability of death and the power of death over us. But that day waits for the second coming. In the meantime, this principle still applies. Look at verse 56. The sting of death, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that victory will finally be experienced in his second coming. What does it mean the sting of death is sin? When, when you die, there's a sting to it. And the reason there's a sting to it, and there's only one reason there's a sting to it, and that is that you, at, during the course of your life in this world, at least one time, and for all of us, it's many, 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 many more times than one. But at least one time, every single one of us sinned. So what's the big deal? I sinned. Okay, I wasn't perfect. I sinned. Well, when you die, it'll be a big deal. You'll see when you die just how big a deal it was that you sinned that one time. And then another time, and then another time. But had it only been one time, this principle still would have applied to you. What's the difference between us and the circumstance of Christ. He never sinned a single time. Therefore, Peter declares, it was not possible for him to be held by death. And the word held means literally captured and controlled by it, taken prisoner by it. He died, but he couldn't be held in the prison of death, so to speak. He busted out of prison but the guard couldn't stop him. He, and putting it slightly different, what Peter is essentially saying is, it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. Yes, he died, a real death. But it was impossible for him to stay dead because he never sinned. The power of his glorious, perfect righteousness required him to rise again from the dead, and God did that for him because he was my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Next focal point. David makes a reference to Old Testament prophecy. This is from, and I won't take us back and read it because Peter quotes the most uh, pertinent portions of it, but it's from Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11. You all know that the Psalms are all worship songs. They're all special songs. They're spiritually inspired by God. But even among the Psalms, even among those special worship, worship songs, some of them are rise to an even more important level because they also function as messianic prophecies, meaning certain lines in the song got inspired, like David in this case, to write about the story of Christ as he was writing a song in his own mind about himself. But it was really a song about Christ. So let's read the portion again in verse 25. For David says concerning him, and this is a quotation of Psalm 16. I saw the Lord. This is now the Messiah's testimony. These are words 
David is putting in the Messiah's mouth, in the mouth of Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. It's an interesting image, and I I wish I had time to go a little further into it. Most of the time in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as as being at the right hand of God the Father, right? You're familiar with that? Jesus in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Here, God the Father is described as being at the right hand of Jesus. But the setting is not in heaven. The setting is here on earth. And it it describes not the subordination of the Father to the Son, but the close proximity and total commitment and involvement of the Father in the Son's life in this world. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Basically, no matter what I go through, I won't be shaken. That's what the Messiah's testimony was. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For, and this is the greatest example of why the Messiah never lost hope. This was the Father's commitment to the Messiah. And this song, this song, the lyrics of this song were inspired by God through David hundreds of years before Jesus even entered the world. And so we can know it was pre-planned by God. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, the word resurrection doesn't occur in verse 27, but he is describing the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Now, Hades is a word that's commonly misunderstood. Uh, Most people, when they think of Hades, it's a Greek word. It's from the ancient world. Most people, when they think of Hades, they think of what we call hell. But Hades was a word which simply meant the unseen spiritual realm where the dead go when their life in this world ends. And we've learned that in the, in the purposes of God, in the death experience, there were actually, in the Old Covenant, there were two categories of existence where when a person died in this world, those that were in right relationship with God went to Hades, but a pleasant section of Hades, very pleasant. And when those who were not in right relationship with the Lord died, their souls also went to the unseen realm, but into a very unpleasant circumstance. Now, here, the the Messiah is testifying that the Father God will not abandon my soul, he's speaking of himself, to the unseen realm, or let your Holy One, and here, this is the Messiah's self-testimony. He is declaring and describing himself as the Holy One because he is the only one in history that has never sinned. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Meaning his soul went to Hades at the point of death, his body remained on earth, What would normally happen, and this would happen even for the righteous of the Old Testament, their soul would remain in Hades after they died. And their body, what would happen to their body? It would decompose. Eventually, as, uh, and I just put it up there, uh, compare Genesis 3.19 for your notes. Genesis 3.19 is simply the Lord's own declaration of judgment upon all of humanity because of the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden. And he describes in the future, what's going to happen is you're going to die. And when you die, you will learn in that experience. You came from dust, meaning how did God create humanity? 
He started with Adam and he took dust from the earth and he shaped it like clay into the form of a human being and then he breathed into that clay structure of a human being's body. He breathed from his own, his own being into that clay structure and it became a living soul. And then the Lord, once they sinned, said, you came from dust and to dust you will return. That's where we get still to our, to our day now, the, the famous saying, dust to dust, when you go to a, a funeral service. So what's going to happen to the Messiah that will be unlike everyone else that has ever died in all of human history? Their soul will not be abandoned to Hades, meaning his soul is coming back into this world and coming back into his body. And that body that he's coming back into is not going to be like a half-corrupted zombie body coming out of the grave. His body will be perfectly uncorrupted. And not just uncorrupted, the psalm doesn't add this additional detail. His body that he comes back into is going to be better and greater than the body that he died with. Because it's going to be a glorified, powerful, resurrected body. Now, still in Acts here, verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, why does Peter veer off? He's talking about Jesus. He's focused on the resurrection of Jesus and suddenly he starts talking about King David and King David's death, which was about a thousand years before this day. Maybe, maybe more, something like 1,500 years. He starts talking about the death of King David and he starts talking about the burial of King David and he even references a commonly known great, uh, like we have, uh, like if you go to Washington, D.C., we have monuments erected. Like there's the, the Washington Monument, there's the Lincoln Memorial, there's the Jefferson Monument. We, we want to call attention to these great people that lived in history They had things like that in this culture and they had a monument erected for King David identifying where he had been buried. Why would Peter suddenly veer off into talking about King David's tomb? His point is, and this is a critically important point, he's proving that when King David wrote Psalm 16, he wasn't talking about himself. The rabbis, the the Bible teachers of that day, believed that Psalm 16 was simply David's own testimony. And Peter is proving the rabbis completely missed the point. How can we know that for sure? Because David's soul was left in Hades when he died. And what happened to King David's body? It decomposed. But we know exactly where it is It's in this tomb and it's still there to this day. It would be like me talking to you and saying, look, after church today, what we're going to do, we're all going to go out and visit King David's tomb. I can prove to you he wasn't talking about himself because if he was, then God lied to King David when he said, I will not abandon your soul to Hades and I will not allow your body to be decomposed. Because both of those things happened to King David and were still happening to him at the moment that Peter was declaring it 1,500 years later. But those things never happened to the Messiah. They never happened 
to the Lord Jesus. So he's proving that this was a song that David was inspired to sing about Christ, not about himself. Next focal point, David foresaw the resurrection of Christ. Now, I emphasize from our study last week, which was just on a single verse. The single verse was verse 23. Let me reread that of Acts 2. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. I spent some time emphasizing the common misunderstanding about foreknowledge. I said God wasn't just peering down the corridors of time. Do you remember me emphasizing that? He wasn't just looking down into the future and then, and then planning what he saw would happen apart from him. That when we speak of the foreknowledge of God, it's describing God's involvement in history to such an extent which is a sovereign, powerful involvement that he knows what's going to happen because he's going to cause it to happen. And when he plans it, it's, it's proclaiming the certainty that it will happen exactly the way he said it would happen. But here, when, we say, when Peter says that David in verse 31 foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, David was in a passive mode of foreseeing. He saw what God opened his eyes to see about what would happen to the Christ. Maybe David didn't understand all the details even of what he was writing about 1,500 years before it happened, but he saw the events that would happen to Christ because God opened his eyes to see it. And it, it emphasizes for us the certainty of true Bible prophecy. When God says... In prophecy, something will happen. It will 100% certainly happen exactly that way. Next, there's only two points of emphasis left. The resurrected one is the promised enthroned one. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, he's speaking about King David. David was a king. He was a great psalmist, a worship leader, but he was also a prophet of God. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Meaning that the resurrected one and only the resurrected one could possibly fulfill the promise that God had made to King David about one of his descendants sitting on the throne because the promise was, Once this one I'm talking about sits on the throne, he will never stop sitting on the throne. He will sit on the throne forever. Now, by this time in history, I'm talking about the day of Pentecost, the time that Peter's making this proclamation. The line of Davidic kings, meaning kings that had descended from King David, had ceased to exist. There was a king in Israel named King Herod, but he was not related by descent to King David at all. He was a Roman appointee. He wasn't even 100% Jewish. And so this promise that God had made had not been fulfilled up until this point. And as far as the rabbis were concerned, they weren't sure how it could possibly be fulfilled. And yet God fulfilled it because the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born of the line of King David And now in his resurrection, he is going to be seated upon the throne 
not just of King David on earth, but the throne of God's kingdom in heaven. And once he sits upon that throne, he will never get up from it again, except to come back to this world to culminate and conclude all of history as we know it. So the resurrected one is the enthroned one. A final point of emphasis, Peter says, we, and he's speaking of the apostles here, the 11 that are remaining, and the 12th that has just been added in chapter one of Acts, we, the apostles, are witnesses of his resurrection. Why, why is it important to emphasize witnesses? Well, witnesses function still to this day in our legal system in a very important way. And apart from court, we don't need witnesses. Witnesses are essential to prove an event as factually true. This really did happen. This is real history. This is true. We can all confirm it because we have seen it with our own eyes. And so that emphasizes to us that the resurrection is not like so many other religious stories you'll hear during the course of your life. It's not legendary. It's not mythological. It's not made up by human beings, but it's historical and it's actual. It's a real, true event that really did happen. All right, now, as the worship team comes forward, I think we'll have just enough time to do uh, one last song of worship. Let me give you a couple of points, and I think they're all up there, uh, or should be in just a moment, of application for our lives today. First, recognize the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus to the gospel story. Just, again, I'll say it this way. If you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you can only share one thing, make sure you don't leave out the resurrection in what you share with them. Second, make the resurrection of Jesus the emphasis of your own personal opportunities that the Lord brings your way in sharing the gospel. Third, rejoice that God has vindicated his son in the resurrection. He's made it abundantly clear by raising this man to a glorious, unending life that he and he alone, I mean, so many people in history have claimed to be the special one, but only one has been raised from the dead. He is the proven one. He has been vindicated and it's it's a cause for us to rejoice. Uh, Fourth, honor the resurrected one as the enthroned one over God's kingdom. There's only one person qualified to sit on that throne and to rule over God's kingdom forever and ever. And he is that one. And of course, that should stir us to give him the honor that only he is due. And then finally, we should all believe the eyewitness testimony of the apostles to the resurrection. Because here's the truth, and this is what comes down as the bottom line to us. I wasn't there to see Jesus come out of the tomb, and neither were you. But they were. They saw him. And not just the 11 saw him. In one of the later resurrection appearances, we're told that 500 people were there to witness the resurrection of Jesus. And it should give our hearts ultimate confidence in the historic and real truth of this event not legendary, not mythological, but historic and actual. All right, let's, let's uh, sing.